Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. The Industrial Revolution saw the rise of factories so big they often grew entire towns or cities around them to operate, but in the future, entire planets might be used to fuel the titanic projects for conquering the stars themselves. Welcome back to Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur for another Sci-Fi Sunday here on SFIA, where we examine popular concepts in science fiction and ask how realistic they are and what a future with them might truly look like. One of the common themes of science fiction is the idea of a giant city full of factories, and often these are dark and grungy places, where even the homes workers come back to after 12-hour shifts are dirty and grimy. There are no gardens or parks, except maybe the occasional crime-ridden one with a few petrified and ash-covered trees left over. These sorts of factory cities are portrayed as bleak places and draw heavily on the gloomier moments of the Industrial Revolution for inspiration, like the London Smog. It isn't much of a stretch to imagine that repeating itself in the future, or even worse, especially if translated up to the planetary scale. We will discuss some of the reasons why a planet, devoted to industry, might not be a trash heap, but this is a case where fiction might be close to right. This episode is also an informal sequel to our episode Hive Worlds, our Sci-Fi Sunday episode back in May of this year, where we tried to imagine what cities covering a whole planet might look like, and with more of a grim bent than the show is often known for. There's a reason for that too, the term Forge World was popularized as meaning a whole planet devoted to industry from the Warhammer 40,000 setting, which also popularized the terms Hive Worlds and Grimdark, so we see few examples of anything not totally dystopian in that setting unless it's a rare example about to get destroyed, or a fake mask hiding something even more sinister. We'll explore this more in our episode Agri Worlds in a couple months. In that setting, the Forge Worlds are the fiefs of the Martian Mechanicum, and were principally colonized in a time where Mars had degenerated from a beautifully terraformed paradise into a ruined hellscape populated by mutants and cyborgs. Those cyborgs worshipped technology and got the upper hand, and periodically sent out colony ships to found new settlements following their cult mechanicum. But in their case they are religiously devoted to industry-reverent principles, that flesh is weak and efficiency is vital. They absolutely have the technology to run cleaner operations and ones that are less horribly flesh and soul wrecking, but they have no real motivation to do so. They're not big into individualism, and they view everyone as essentially expendable, themselves included, all a big cog in the machine. If you excel in that environment and have net value to them, you'll get augmentations to replace damaged bits or improve your performance. If not, you get turned into a servitor, a lobotomized cyborg basically, or you just get recycled. They would not repair a planet to pristine paradise if it even cost them only 1% in efficiency. Indeed they might actually sacrifice some efficiency since they would rather assist and have artificial lungs than clean air normal lungs could handle, because they would view that person as better than before, and they'd probably also view the toxic air from industry as a good thing 
since it helps remind people why mechanical body parts are better than weak fleshly ones. They loathe artificial intelligence, incidentally, and do view increasing technological enhancements as a journey a fleshy person undergoes toward perfection, so they start off with baseline humans, albeit often genetically tailored ones. That's the quick overview of the Mechanicum, which is basically a micro-empire inside a larger human empire that they do all the IT, technology, and most of the industry for, with technology temples maintaining the industry of other non-Mechanicum planets. They make a lot of guns, and a lot of tanks, and a lot of warships, because the wider empire is always at war with everything. In my opinion, the Mechanicum is one of the few justified examples of dystopian mega-industry, precisely because their motivation to let their factory communities be garbage heaps is not casual greed, like in so many other portrayals in fiction. Rather, they view it as something in between a necessary sacrifice with silver linings to an actual blessing. In the more default setting, such as the cyberpunk genre in general, the motivation is always sheer greed by the powers that be, which certainly has historical precedent but can get a bit over the top and mustache twirling. It also runs into the issue that if your workers are all falling over dead at age 40 from lung cancer or some other environmental ailment, then even if you sent most kids to sweatshops at age 8, you're still losing a ton of productive time from those adults. You're also only getting the least valuable production out of them, the kind that robots and general automation tend to do so well. So why not spend a few extra bucks to have a robot mop and vacuum cleaner keep the workshops and apartment stacks cleaner? In a meta sense, the answer is because the setting is supposed to show a brutal dreary and short life devoted to no worthy cause. You're not working yourself to death to save humanity from alien invaders or some catastrophe, you're doing it to line some jerk's pockets who spends all day enjoying hedonistic luxury you only know of because glimpsing makes your own life seem even worse. There is no escape except to join gangs who prey on others, or devote oneself to some empty cult that's secretly sinister, and wherever hope rears its head it gets stepped on, until the protagonist shows up, though often they get stepped on in these stories too. The thing is that most of what we produce is designed to improve standard of living and generally has spread that around, even if unevenly, a fact that has been taken into account in some science fiction series. You can see this in Anne McCaffrey and Margaret Ball's book Partnership, the second in McCaffrey's Brainship series, where a plant's industrialization around a single mineral is the catalyst to improving the lives of the inhabitants, not forcing them into a life of dependence and drudgery. The inhabitants of the planet Angalia, an intelligent species called the Lucys, use the profits from a Corsium mine to go from a poor planet dependent on interplanetary aid to a thriving worker-owned industrial planet with the mine at the core of its economy. In this case the Lucys end up owning the resources that they are taught to mine, and it works out pretty well for them. If your factories are running on slave labor or serfdom, this is probably not the case, but then your issue is the slave labor part, not the high productivity part. This means if your overlords have any desire to be nice and take care of you, they have way more resources to spare doing that, or to be fair, way more resources to more thoroughly oppress you. Either way though, if their technology is even a little bit better than ours is today, they really don't need to have you do backbreaking labor. Hence why the Martian Mechanicum seems more realistic. They would like you to do backbreaking labor so that you will value the cybernetic spine they replace your broken back with. 
Nor do humans have the attention span for doing 12 hour shifts of oversight or quality control, which is also something AI can probably use to help with. The sun up to sundown death shifts common in grim or science fiction wouldn't serve much point. So they're not really going to work people to death, and if they're really only keeping people around to lord it over them, because virtual reality fantasy isn't enough for them, then the majority of people on your factory planets aren't going to be working in a factory, but be household servants, where the boss can enjoy lording it over you more directly, and you're probably genetically engineered and indoctrinated to be fine with that. The default dystopia is, in my humble opinion, not realistic not just because it assumes way too much malice and evil, but too much incompetence on their part too. It's good that some sci-fi authors have pivoted away from this kind of simplistic representation, like in Julianne May's Rampart Ward series, where the group of companies called the Hundred Concerns experimentally proved that their radical principle of treating the indigenous inhabitants of the plants they explored respectfully would lead to higher profits than exploiting them as slaves or serfs. This philosophy was confirmed when they were given the local delicacy Razkaz when their main business was running a platinum mining operation. It turned out Razkaz is a confection more delicious than chocolate, so they switched to producing it instead, and the commodity became the basis of their fledging company's wealth. Of course that's fiction too, and the real future is hard to see, but I still think the dystopian settings are way too Darwinianistic for villains that evil to live, hence again why I find something like the Martian Mechanicum a little bit more plausible, because for them, the toxic and oppressive landscape is a design feature, not a flaw. And it's a reminder that fiction isn't about realism, it's about good storytelling, but science fiction is supposed to seek realism a bit more often. Your typical corporate higher-up is as likely as not a workaholic, and the churn and burn rates at the top tend to be higher than the bottom of any hierarchy too. Folks either reach their true objective, X amount of money or security, and leave, or they burn out, and often a mix of both. The islands of stability tend to be those whose goal for doing the work is, well, doing the work. And usually there's a chunk who are decently social about it too, and thus good at mentoring, recruiting, or alliance building. It also means you can maintain a 100 hour work week while still socializing, since you can go have lunch or drinks or conferences that are part of work with people who share your interest in that work. And this is in every aspect of life, not just the corporate world or politicians, we do it in the arts and sciences, trades, small businesses, even in the YouTuber and podcasting world. The long timers all survive burnout by loving their work and being energized by it. Though nobody is one dimensional either, I don't spend all day keeping up on science and sci-fi when not working on the show. I just came back from coaching my son's soccer team and have been tabbing back and forth between this script and recipe ideas for zucchini to figure out how to cook all the zucchini our garden seems to have bumper crop this year. And that's a key thing to keep in mind. We could be talking about a single huge factory that makes one thing, a whole planet that was nothing but robots sucking in raw material and outputting tanks, and we'll contemplate that today too, but outside that sort of case, even a whole planet devoted to industry is going to have a lot of other things going on. Which brings us to another related kind of industrial planet, corporate or corp worlds, where rather than the whole planet being devoted to a single industry, the whole planet is instead owned by a single corporation. This is relatively common in science fiction, from the giant commerce monopoly, Combine Honet Obor Advanced Mercantiles, CHOME, 
in Frank Herbert's Dune, which dealt in a series of commodities and products, including the spice on Arrakis, to the serious cybernetics corporation in Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, whose complaints division takes up three entire planets in the Tau system. These are usually not depicted as dystopias, even if at times they are a little Kafka-esque, and are generally more realistic. That's probably because this kind of thing is not uncommon on Earth already, company towns can be found on every continent, serving industries from diamond mining to textiles to nuclear power plants. Even ignoring the community needs of the workers, it would also seem like the main industry would need to have some further end. We joke about paperclip maximizers who make paperclips for the sake of making paperclips, or some hegemonizing swarm turning the whole galaxy into more of itself and its preferred widget, but that's an example of misprogramming. Something was done stupidly or went awry. Your factory produces things for a purpose. An industrial planet is producing things for some wider goal, maybe guns to fight alien invaders. The folks working there or owning it may believe in that purpose or just like the paycheck, but that purpose remains, and I thought we would use some fictional examples to illustrate this. Earlier this week we discussed Starship Factories, and that's a good example to begin with, because if we could imagine an entire world devoted to manufacturing Starships, it does imply Starships are so abundant, and the demand from other planets so high, that interplanetary trade in those ships is also common. Such being the case, is this planet making starships from raw materials, or lots of parts coming in from other places? Is payment in raw materials from asteroid mines, or do they mine the planet itself? It's easy to imagine a bulk freighter bringing in parts and raw materials, and bringing small space yachts away. Are they building ships on the ground or just some parts, with assembly in space? How many ships do they build a year, and how many people live there? Always hard to answer in a future context, as a planet-sized factory might have no inhabitants except one big AI, or it might be no more robotic than nowadays, or it might even have the equivalent of fixed-term seasonal workers, and we might have a situation such as in Dan Abnett's novel Xenos where the people of the planet Hubris live on a world so elliptical in its orbit that most of the population spends most of the local year on ice, waking for the warm periods and I could imagine setups where civilizations went into stasis for a part of the year. Or in the case of the planet Magrathea from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which manufactured custom planets for the super-rich, the whole civilization went on ice after a recession hit until the galactic economy could afford their services again. Unless you are manufacturing something of planetary scale though, like Magrathea did, the very existence of a dedicated factory planet implies there's some benefit to off-site manufacture, as otherwise every inhabited rock manufactures all it needs on-site, or nearly so, as with some sort of super 3D printer or Star Trek style replicator. What's permitting this place to be so good at making ships compared to everyone else that is able to devote itself entirely to that goal? Well, maybe nothing, they might be the only place allowed to use some dangerous bit of technology needed for making ships, or the only one their wider realm offered a permit to, or just one that secures all the lucrative government contracts and can subsidize the other production with it. They might use half their production on government warships and then can use the other half for making private yachts or space freighters at below cost from others wanting to get into the market. And again there's no guarantee there is a market, they might just flat out designate the plants that make Widget X 
and over the years they've discarded every other industry to ramp up that production and avoid failing to meet demand and losing their monopoly. It could be a recent thing too. In a no FTL universe you might get reports that a dozen colonies, 30 light years away, got attacked by what appeared to be an invasion force moving at an average of 20% of light speed, and you've got to turn your peaceful forest planet into one giant factory for battleships while your neighbors spew out other items. Also in about a century you can muster a big force across a light decade wide battlefront to meet those invaders. Maybe one of those planets just makes guns or tanks or clones or drones for battle. We also want to keep in mind that just inside one system, working its way toward being Carter Shift 2, devoting one planet to industry is not that big a deal, and a Dyson Swarm might need 10 billion people manufacturing paperclips to keep up with demand. How much spaceship you produce per person is a bit of a tricky one, but for context, a big plane like a 747 costs something like half a million dollars per cubic meter, while an aircraft carrier is more like a hundred thousand dollars a cubic meter, a freight truck might be more like a thousand bucks a cubic meter, and an oil tanker similar. That's a fairly wide range, and one notably absent any actual modern spaceships, which have an even higher price tag. But to a loose approximation you can't talk about something's cost or production rate in terms of dividing the total dollar cost by the average labor cost or even the GDP per capita since we're looking at the very large scale. There may only be a hundred dock workers welding on that ship, but there's folks all the way back to the mines providing the metal and the factories making the mining equipment that needs to be considered in the final price. And what that means is that in modern GDP per capita translating a citizen time, it's taking about four person workdays per cubic meter to seven person work years for the more pricey stuff. So if your shipbuilding factory planet of 10 billion people is automated enough to be turning out spaceships at a cubic meter per citizen per year, then you are making 10 billion cubic meters or 10 cubic kilometers of ship a year, or a hundred thousand aircraft carrier sized ships, or some single behemoth of a ship 5 miles long and nearly a mile wide. In normal shipbuilding you can't exceed a ton per cubic meter since that's the density of water and it would sink. Spaceships can be denser or thinner, of course, by entire orders of magnitude. Similarly, some gas freighter might be way cheaper and way less dense too, and you might be milling out several million big volatile gas tankers or ice pushers, each larger than our biggest modern oil tankers. And this all without assuming any more automation than nowadays and no external sourcing of anything. You are buying all that stuff with the money you make selling the ships. And presumably there's a lot of local industry for things where it's just easier and cheaper to do it on planet even though it means devoting manpower to that industry. You presumably still have restaurants and schools, and with 10 billion people, at least a sports league or two. It is worth remembering that our modern cities are mostly built around this dynamic, especially within the last century. A city is attractive to a potential new factory for having an available supply of workers and also lots of existing infrastructure and so some will build there even though this often has higher costs in other respects. Alternatively, another factory might site itself in a place with far fewer people, cheaper land and less existing infrastructure and regulation as they expect to attract workers, and the city will then spawn all sorts of other businesses and services to meet the needs of that workforce. But I said manpower a moment ago and note that we assumed a fairly classic or modern labor and production rate. What about all those bots? 
Does your planet even have big visible factories people walk in, or is it some sprawling well manicured garden of a suburb sitting on top of huge underground robot run industries, which presumably have a lower layer of criminals, outcasts, and mutants beneath them for a good place to set a grim tale? And again, what are these factories producing? If we use the same GDP per capita on the modern military assault rifle, it works out to be around 100 per citizen per year, so a planet of 10 billion is pumping out a trillion rifles or las guns or whatever a year, using modern tech. And if we're assuming that rifle needs overall replacement every decade, and that only 1% of the population need it equipped, then the implied civilization they're supplying is 1 quadrillion people, the equivalent of over 100,000 classic sci fi planets or in more realistic terms, not even a thousandth of a modestly populated Dyson Swarm, which presumably would need a few thousand such planets or their equivalents in space habitats to fill that order. So yes, there's absolutely a place in the future, even a pretty peaceful future, for some entity the size of a major nation-state to have space guns as its primary industry and be just one of many thousand such entities in a single solar system, the Remington Rotating Hab. In Dyson scale terms, if a few people are employed in something nowadays, a few planets worth of people could be in a full scale Dyson swarm. Whatever we need millions of, they need quadrillions of, and it hardly needs to be something like guns. The war footing just gives us a mental vehicle for why people might put up with living in a dumpster fire of an industrial wasteland. In a Dyson swarm, which we are probably less than a hundred generations from living in, ignoring technological changes, you need whole planetary populations just working in the factories that produce earbuds for people to listen to music on, or nail clippers or hairbrushes, and not just one, but many of them. Do they have to be covered in smog? Well, no, it obviously would depend a lot on what they were building, but they may have known what they were wanting to make and picked an airless world with that in mind. The alternative to a Dyson, and the better known one from sci-fi, is a big galactic empire, and there are probably at least a trillion planets in this galaxy with gravity you or I would find comfortable. Whether or not they have sunlight or water is kind of secondary with enough energy available, and that's rather implied by having access to casual, regular, and FTL travel, much as superior automation is implied inside a Dyson, since we're assuming construction costs are low enough to economically build space habitats. In that Dysonian setup, you probably don't have planet-sized factories, because you build them only your cylinder size, or as big as your materials economically allow, but you probably have factories bigger than that where those habitats get built. We could imagine a megastructure, call it Magrathea, a hollow shell of a megaplanet, where they don't build rotating habitats, but rather construct habitable and landscape shells around micro-black holes, custom shell worlds for the discriminating quadrillionaire or mega-nation. The sort of dry dock you are using for building the huge planet ships we talked about using for intergalactic colonization of our supercluster. For the more familiar FTL case, you picked your forge ward from a list of cheap and metal-rich planets in a red dwarf system not too far from Earth, which along with other early colonies is the biggest market for everything. You plan to mine that planet initially and outsource some of that raw material production to the inevitable asteroid miners who pop up in any system, many of whom aren't much better than the space pirates who prey on shipping and are often probably the same people. Maybe you buy material off of them to minimize their urge for piracy, but that planet had no noteworthy atmosphere and you don't have any plans of terraforming the place, so you just blow waste right onto the open landscape 
since it's a barren garbage heap anyway. It would be an interesting question how much waste gas you would have to ventilate to exceed the amount of the local atmospheric escape rate so that it began collecting. Amusingly, since oxygen is typically the first or at worst second most common element on any rocky planet's surface, or moon or asteroid, and gets released in most efforts to refine metals or silicon out of rock, you could end up with an oxygen-rich atmosphere fairly quickly. Relatively speaking, of course, there's over a quadrillion tons of oxygen in our atmosphere, and way more nitrogen, so you would have had to have produced at least a quadrillion tons of locally sourced industrial output to leave a breathable atmosphere hanging around. This might be a phase planets go through too. As we noted in our Prison Planets episode and many of other Rogue Civilization series episodes, situations are not eternal, and even a culture that only lasted a couple centuries on a small portion of one planet is already rivaling all greatest civilizations of history, and thus is pretty noteworthy. A planet that began as a prison planet, Australia style, might be a normal way to terraform planets. You offer prisoners or malcontents a free ticket to a new and harsh world, with the understanding that their parole is forging this place into a better land for their descendants and future migrants. In future eras, that leaves behind a planet that has a prison planet as an interesting historical influence, and maybe a boastful comment for descendants of prisoners to make it parties, but is otherwise just another regular planet. This could be the same for Forge Wars. We often imagine some paradise planet transmuting to some industrial wasteland, but that could go the other way. Maybe you terraform Mars by baking oxygen out of the rock, while you get vast amounts of metal to make all the equipment for terraforming or to sell to pay for nitrogen freighters from Titan or Venus or the Kuiper Belt. So if you're turning out a quadrillion tons of product, what are you building? A single thing, that needs to be produced at one spot like a spaceship, or a ton of some specialized widget for export? What masses a quadrillion tons? Well a hundred thousand O'Neill cylinders come to mind, seven million Gloriana-class battleships for our 40k fans, though I always find their ship mass estimates implausibly low, 10 billion modern aircraft carriers, 100 quadrillion rifles, or microwave ovens, a quadrillion cars, about half a million years of all modern annual steel output for Earth. What are they really producing though? With robots doing a lot of the work, we don't need to assume the production rate itself is based on manpower, but rather on waste heat limitations and a market that wants stuff. We could use Mars as an example, but it ought to be the same in any system. When they first arrive, they need a whole interplanetary infrastructure and all those big thin solar power collectors, mirrors, and shades. They might only need a few tons of material per square kilometer, but you need billions of them to terraform a planet that's too hot or cold, or to beam energy in to run a high-tech world. So too, a hundred thousand O'Neill cylinders may sound like a lot, but we assume between a hundred thousand to a million inhabitants each, and so that's only enough homes for ten billion to one hundred billion people. So there's definitely enough market for a lone planet in a growing Dyson Swarm to be pumping out a thousand of those a year, and still not keeping up with demand, and still need millions of years to deplete their available iron or aluminum in that planet's surface crust, let alone the vaster supply in the mantle or core. Would they be building those on planet? Probably not, big ships or habitats would likely be built at an orbital ring and launched from there, 
a big equatorial band 30 kilometers or 20 miles wide might easily have 20,000 standard O'Neill cylinders under construction on that band at any time, just getting woven out along the axis, each taking a decade or more to complete. Maybe you have 10,000 workers on each habitat each shift welding things in place or bossing around the weld or drones, and that's still only 200 million folks doing that job, and since it is an orbital ring, only an hour of travel from the surface. So most of them live up there, others don't, others run the welding drones from home by remote telepresence. A 20 mile wide band like that, while as bright as the full moon to those down on the ground, is still covering much less than a percent of that planet's surface, they could have multiple rings or have them further out. That production alone easily pays for shipping in the nitrogen for terraforming that airless rock and filling all those cylinders with air, oxygen, and nitrogen means you've got that terraforming supply pipeline set up already. So maybe this is the natural temporary pioneer state of many future planets, to be turned into industrial worlds initially to pay for terraforming of the paradise world it becomes. We also occasionally talk about disassembling whole planets for raw materials, and this is more of what that would look like rather than blowing it up and scooping the debris. You just mine the planet at a rate at which the mantle will cool to replenish the amount you're mining in any given period. This isn't necessarily resulting in an ever-shrinking planet either, since you might be using a lot less of the exportable bits to just make layer after layer of hollow planet. We talk about dumping compressed abundant hydrogen or helium into such a shell world to replace the mass for gravity, and that could just be in shells in those layers, hydrogen, helium, excess oxygen, or even dark matter and micro black holes, which are all great for powering that planet too. Keep them evenly distributed, and shells are as good as centrally located mass. But you might not bother and just let folks adapt to ever lowering gravity till all that was left was a massive hollow planet. And an Earth sized planet with a density like a hollow ship is still going to have gravity parallel to our own moon or Jupiter's Galileans. And it might have pressurized chambers stuffed to the gills with fusion fuel or refined raw materials to support the population after the resources ran dry and they ate that planet after millions and millions of years of continuous industrial output beyond anything we do nowadays. Every industry has waste and the big pollution of industry in general is heat, so I would always think of industrial planets as hot, as one running at maximum would probably mean running as hot as they could without causing more problems, or catastrophic problems anyway. A given civilization might decide the max meant no more than 1% of the normal instant solar power on that planet, another might think double was just fine because they can air condition individual habitats and folks can wear cooling suits if they have to go into hotter parts. Double the heat output of a planet and in a first order approximation you raise its temperature by 19%, but that's absolute temperature, so for Earth that would be more like 50 Kelvin or Celsius or around 100 degrees Fahrenheit hotter. But on Mars, that temperature increase would actually make the place comfortable. This might be how you get and keep your temperature right for all those forests and gardens in the open air you want one day. And the only pollution technology should not offer a fix for handling is waste heat itself, so might as well put it to use making your world beautiful instead of wrecking it. If you've got some frigid planet that's a nice mass for sediment, and probably has lots of water and nitrogen if it's cold and big like that, then you might think it's a lot more economical to beam power into run factories and warm your planet and expand your resources through production and trade instead of just beaming in sunlight and maintaining that network at great cost with no other benefit. 
Here you might be using 100 gigajoules of energy to mine, refine, and manufacture a metric ton of valuable equipment, but you'd need to produce at least a trillion tons of that equipment a year to have a sizable impact on the planetary temperature of some place like Mars to make it livable, probably a lot more, especially if a lot was being done in space where it's blocking sunlight coming in and radiating its heat elsewhere. So yes, industrial planets producing thousands of big ships a year is very plausible, unrealistic only in being too small, and more realistically, it's how many ships have to dock every day just to haul off the cargo being produced. As we said near the beginning, while dystopian industrial fiction has production principally for no good end, seeming to just make garbage, smog, and oppressed people, real industry exists to fill needs. You're making a quadrillion tons of things people need, and which raise their standard of living, and indeed you're making the habitats they live on. Your forge ward is literally forging new worlds, each new cylinder habitat or arc ship it makes, and in the end, the most important ward you might be forging is your own. Sometimes science fiction shows us industrial planets like we discussed today, and portrays them as a dark age yet to come, but there was another not too long after the Big Bang that lasted nearly a hundred million years before normal stars began to form, and yet we think there may have been strange stellar objects, dark stars, and other phenomena we believe may have existed in this dark age at the beginning of time. We'll explore that topic in this month's Nebula original, Dark Stars at the Beginning of Time, which is out now on Nebula, our streaming service. On Nebula, you not only get to see every regular episode of SFIA a few days early and ad-free, but all of our other bonus content, including extended editions of mini-episodes, and more Nebula originals like Life as an Asteroid Minor, Nomadic Miners on the Moon, Space Freighters, Retro Causality, Orc OR, and Free Will, Conformal Cyclic Cosmology, Colonizing Binary Stars, and more. Nebula has tons of great content from an ever-growing community of creators. Using my link and discount, it's available now for just over $2.50 a month, less than the price of the drink or snack you might have been enjoying during the episode, and it goes to supporting new content from myself and other creators. When you sign up at my link, go.nebula.tv slash and use my code, IsaacArthur, you not only get access to all the great stuff Nebula offers, you'll also be directly supporting the show. Again, to see SFIA early and ad-free and with all the exclusive bonus content, go to go.nebula.tv slash Before we get to our schedule of upcoming episodes, I wanted to let everyone know that the National Space Society's Space Policy Debates Program is calling on high school and university students around the world to debate the hottest topics in space. Astropreneurs are rocketing towards a thrilling future, with launch costs plummeting, space is no longer a distant dream but a trillion dollar opportunity by 2040. Who will govern this new frontier? What is your role in the universe? If you enjoy debate and are a student, or a teacher interested in mentoring them, and want to dive into the cosmos and shape the future, you can join this electrifying journey at the Spun Debates. I'll link the details in the episode description. So next month's Sci-Fi Sunday will be on the concept of human-alien hybrids, but we have several episodes before then, starting this Thursday, October 19th, where we'll discuss if life extension is ethical. Then we'll look at another type of dedicated planet, Fortress Worlds, on October 26th. 
and two weeks we'll finish October with our monthly livestream Q&A on the 29th. Then on November 2nd we'll ask if Rebel Space Colonies we often contemplate in sci-fi and futurism might occur and what they'll be like, before we release our big three hour long updated and extended edition of the Fermi Paradox Compendium on November 9th. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. You can also support the show on Patreon, and if you want to donate and help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, isaacarthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes early and ad-free on our streaming service Nebula, along with hours of bonus content at go.nebula.tv slash As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week.